How might we learn from generations of indigeneity to find resilience, adaptation, and innovation during COVID? Today on the show, I speak with the incredible Kira Brandt Birkoff. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. There's something so special about Kira and her research that is impossible to ignore when you listen to this conversation. Maybe it's her hopeful optimism, her contagious love for learning and education, or perhaps it's the power of her vulnerability. Whatever it is, I know you will appreciate Kira's work as much as me after spending some time with her today. Kira is a Haudenosaunee woman from Tyndanaga Mohawk Territory who recently has been appointed as an assistant professor at York University in their Faculty of Education. Kira's writing and research focuses on Haudenosaunee thought, Indigenous curriculum theory, reconciliatory pedagogies, and Indigenous language revitalization. In this conversation, we talk about what settlers can learn from Indigenous communities to not just get through this time, but to actually thrive. We talk about our research on teacher education in New Zealand, language revitalization, and the importance of relationships between settlers and Indigenous knowledge keepers. I'm just speaking for myself right now, but I think you'll agree with me after you hear this conversation. I wish I knew Kira when I was first learning to become a teacher. Her kindness, wisdom, and perspective are all so needed in our profession, and I'm so grateful that she took the time today to be with us. Please welcome to the show, Kira Brandt Birkoff. Kira, I have been looking forward to this conversation since I first read about your writing. So welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you so much, Celeste. Um, I usually have uh, guests introduce themselves. So can you start by telling everyone who you are, where you live, and what you do? Definitely. I mean, this has been uh, shifting uh, a lot lately <laughs> in terms of uh, who I am and where I am, um, but uh, I'll, I'll try to get this right um, consistently. Uh, my name is uh, Kira Gayetanoro Brant Burikov. Um, I am a Haudenosaunee of uh, Wolf Clan from Tindanega Mohawk Territory. Uh, we know it as Bendege. And uh, I currently live in Toronto. I suppose I'm a, I'm a Torontonian now. Uh, my husband and I are still getting settled here, uh, but I'm uh, just thrilled to be in, in the city now as, uh, as a new assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at York University. Uh, so great. When did you move to Toronto? When did you settle here? Uh, October. Oh, yay. <laughs> so this is October. very new. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> You're so welcome. We're really excited to have you in the city. I'll have to like show you all the best places to go and eat and good parks to go play in. Yes. <laughs> um, so I found out about your work. I am doing my PhD at OISE and reading is my full-time job now. And I found your article. I can't remember which windy path I went down that I found the article that you wrote called COVID-19 and Indigeneity, Lessons from Indigenous Resilience, Adaptation and Innovation in Times of Crisis. The first thing, Kira, that came to my mind was yes. Like I read this and I feel like I was just like, I was in my car waiting to pick up my child. I was like, oh, thank goodness. I was so happy to read it because I feel like what you're writing is so needed right now in education. You know, a little bit from my background, I'm a queer woman and I'm often reading stories about LGBTQ people, usually like YA books. And the thing that makes them different is often problematized in the literature. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, like it's an issue that you're gay and this is a problem. Mm -hmm. 
And I've often felt like there needs to be more literature for this community that I'm part of that shows what makes us unique as a superpower, as something that should be celebrated. And your article is doing that for Indigenous people. And I think that, you know, I've taught grade eight history. I think it's really easy when you're teaching the history, especially when you're trying to do it in a socially just way for young people to see Indigenous folks as you know, people who are suffering or people who are oppressed and you flip that on its head and you say, actually, no, the thing that's made us oppressed for many years is actually our superpower now. And actually, this is what's made us innovative and adaptive. And I just want to start by saying thank you, because as a white settler, I feel like we need to read more of these stories. Oh, thank you so much, Celeste. It, it was, uh, I, I really can't take credit for it uh, at all <laughs> at, at any stage. Um, a, a lot of it just came with um, sitting with uh, family and those early conversations in early COVID of, uh, you know, calling up my grandma and just being like, what do we do? Um, you know, how, how do we respond to this time? And it was at this time when all of the stories came out of this is how we responded when our children were taken away. This is how we responded when we had to move from upper state New York to, from in my case, for my community to, to Southern Ontario. Um, and the, these stories of um, adapt and innovate and respond and, and identify what is precious to you, what is sacred to you, bring that forward and, and, and let the rest go. Um, because when, when you're stuck in the past, when you hold on to, especially that early rhetoric of returning to normal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and really, uh, what, what does that mean? Um, and, and is it not an opportunity to, to move forward with, with what's needed? And, and what's needed is, is family and loved ones and prioritizing the well-being of community community. And so these teachings and these stories that just came out in such an organic way at that time within my, my family and, and also within our, our broader communities, both in Canada and, and definitely listening to conversations in New Zealand and how Maori communities were responding as well to, to COVID. It was just like, man, mm. like people need to hear this and, and, and know this. And, and, and so just sitting with these stories um, and then receiving an invitation from uh, Dr. Bill Pinar um, asking if, if I might have um, a response or, or a commentary. And I'm like, boy, do I, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. I got it all here. <laughs> yeah. I love how you start by saying, you know, these don't just come from me because nobody knows alone. And I think that yes. you're showing that so clearly in your writing that this is coming from a long tradition, a long legacy of people yeah. that came before you. And I think it's just so wise to begin there. So let's, let's start with that. Let's start with your story because I love, you know, we're in the world of education. People are listening to this who are teachers. Tell us your story, especially through the world of education. Who were you as a young person growing up? Who were you in school? Who was little Kira in grade <laughs> school? Like walk us through your journey. Yeah, well, I, I think what's what's so lovely, Celeste, and I, immediately other educators get it because I, I know I'm not alone. Of uh, I come from a long line of educators on, on both sides of, of my family. Um, my great-grandparents on both sides were, were educators and both of my grandmas were, and then both of my parents were. And it's just, it was so instilled of uh, each one of us have gifts in this world. And uh, my, my gift was uh, wanting to be a teacher. And so um, it's 
just informed how I carried myself in, in school was sitting and observing. I vividly remember uh, Miss Lloyd, if you're out there, she was um, a student teacher and she was a practicum teacher for only a matter of weeks in my grade five class. And I remember sitting there and watching Miss Lloyd's movements and how she responded uh, to students in the class and how she was bringing out the best of us. And, and that early observation of uh, watching, watching educators and, and what does it mean to work with youth when I myself was still so tiny and so adolescent it just um it, it in turn and informed um you know wanting to be a good student um and so I I, I loved school um but I, I also recognize what that um how that biases my opinion as as an educator of so many of our kids don't love school and so I, I also need to be mindful of how I'm reaching them um, because it's easy to teach those that were students like us and it's 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 reaching all of them uh, but I I did I I loved school and I was educated until grade eight uh, on reserve and so in my community and and that blessing just so greatly informed um, you know, how I also carried myself in, in education and, and likewise seeing myself as an educator of, um, you know, being raised in uh, the culture and in the, the language. Um, but then likewise, it was a very stark contrast of then moving off reserve um, for high school. And I think we went to the same <laughs> high school, which yeah. blows my mind. <laughs> Before I hit record, well, when I was researching you, I found you, you know, just like you're writing by your research. Yeah. And then I started researching you I'm like, oh, yeah. So you grew up on the Tainaga Reserve. I grew up like, you know, five kilometers away from that. And then I'm like, I think probably she went to my high school and turns yep. out we did. We were separated by 10 years, but yeah. I love how these circles kind of just like overlapped and yeah. we're in the same worlds now, which is, I just makes me so much more fascinated with you and your growing up and your history. <laughs> so and you went to the same yeah. high school 10 years later. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, but the high school experience was, was fabulous as well being so close to the reserve and having most kids from uh, Tyndanaga go to uh, my high school um, was just this really beautiful um, safety net. Uh, we, we still had one another, um, but then by extension, again, loved high school um, and still felt very confident of being um, a young Mohawk woman and coming into my identity, um, but then really being slapped in the face of when I went to university. And so leaving my community and, and walking into a space, I went to University of Ottawa for my undergrad, walking into a space where not only did people know um, what it meant to interact with an Indigenous person, uh, but just had no sense of indigeneity or, or of history. Um, and uh, the it it was a hard uh, adjustment. <laughs> um, and even though I studied uh, Indigenous studies and did Indigenous history and thought that that would kind of be yet again, another safety net, um, the, the legacy of, of colonialism was, was really toxic throughout my undergrad. Mm. And then it fueled um, the need to uh, not immediately go back to the reserve, to be honest. So once I got my teaching degree, was always my vision if I'd go back to Tyndanaga and I'd teach mm -hmm. at Quinnipiac, and and that was my purpose and my destiny in life. But realizing how um, starved um, other educators were, and just this this um, 
weight of, of a gap that sat in the air of every conversation where Indigenous peoples were not represented, um, that immense responsibility then really kind of took over. And it was my uh, master supervisor, who was the director of teacher education at the time, who I went and I had a bone to pick and, and said, we need to change teacher education. And he said, absolutely, let's do a master's together. And that trajectory, that conversation just it completely changed the, the rest of my life. It's so interesting, you know, like these little, like you were talking about, like these safe spaces where, you know, you move from the reservation to this high school and you have a community of people around mm -hmm. you. Uh, my experience of that high school 10 years earlier was that it was so segregated, like that there weren't a lot of opportunities for the white settler kids to be meaningfully making friendships and connections with the students who were from the reserve and yeah. like had those kinds of intentionalities been designed in you know like this very interesting high school because it could actually have been this really wonderful diverse inclusive community yes. it I didn't find it to be that at all no and had those kinds of thoughts been included in that kind of high school perhaps your experience in university wouldn't have been so challenging or right. frustrating you know like if yeah. these kinds of things were thought through more by educators so Yes, it, it's so important that you're doing this work and thinking about how we talk to teachers and how we train teachers. Thank you. I, th I think I think by extension, though, the educators are ready as well. I mean, ah. like my, you know, my, my grandma and my mom and my dad tried to have these conversations for so long and educators weren't ready. And, and then by extension, it became, again, this idea of a, such a toxic space to be on the front lines and to be an Indigenous educator. Um, but man, what an immense privilege of, of as I finished my master's, um, we had TRC and, yeah. you know, 2015 and what a pivotal moment. So the immense privilege um, that I have as, as a Haudenosaunee educator, as I said, saying the exact same things that my grandma has said and that my mom has said uh, to a very different audience in a very different space. But I think by extension that that privilege is, you know, why I publish, right, mm -hmm. of, of, of how the, the, the COVID-19 um, publication came about because people are ready for these conversations that my family has been having. And I mean, all, all Indigenous families have, have been having and, and it's that, that responsibility that it's like, okay, it, yeah. you know, the spotlight's on and, and, and let's, let's do the hard work. And it's not just you, like you said, it's you speaking with hundreds of thousands of people behind you and that yes. all of that learning, all of that teaching is coming through you with the platform that you have now. Let's talk a little bit about the article that I read. So educators in our system, as we know, they're really struggling within COVID-19 and the mm -hmm. pandemic is not getting any easier for educators. You know, I have a lot of friends who are in the classroom this year and they're saying it's actually harder this year than it was yeah. last year. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's that the adrenaline has worn, worn off or fatigue is now settling in or teachers are feeling how the stress is showing up in their students. Like, I don't know exactly like how to pinpoint it, but it's hard right now, you know, and you're a really important vantage point. What do you think settlers, teacher settlers, obviously can learn from indigenous communities to not just merely get through this time, but to find thriving? Like, how do we do that? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, it's it's interesting. Of, of most of my uh, teacher education experience was with settlers, and now with this new position at York, I work almost exclusively with Indigenous teacher candidates. And so um, I feel like I can now speak to uh, both sides as well of the needs of our settler educators, and by extension, the needs of our our Indigenous um, educators, or at least Indigenous teacher candidates at at, at this time. And uh, the needs are so similar, and yet so so vastly different. As I said, most of my experience and up until quite recently has been uh, settler teacher candidates. Um, it was interesting about the beginning of my career, it was um, resources, right, a, a hunger for resources, a, a hunger for, you know, where can I find this, it, it's just not out there. And that excuse is no longer valid, because there is a plethora of incredible inspiring resources um, on just about every conversation and under the sun. And so uh, that excuse is no longer there. And I don't, I really don't think that, that they're necessarily looking for excuses, but it's when we're confronted with where do I even begin mm -hmm. that it's just far easier to just take a step back and be like, Oh, it, there's not enough resources or, or I just don't feel confident enough. You know, I don't know enough about residential schools. How can I teach residential schools? But I think that once um, we kind of walk to the ledge together and see, yes, it's vast, it's overwhelming, it's going to be scary, um, but that uh, the, the, the need is now and that if, if we're not having these conversations with, with our kids in the classroom, then there, yet again, there's going to be another generation of students um, that, that don't know this history. And I think it's leaning into that source of frustration of if I think about the needs of our settler educators, it so often begins with, why didn't I learn this? Mm. And a frustration at past educators, at, a, at an education system, at an educational discourse, and that you can now be the change. Um, and so I think so much of the needs now with the resources on the table is figuring out how to navigate uh, one's personal responsibility in this broader uh, broader conversation of reconciliation. So when it comes to, you know, providing an example and thinking about something very tangible, land acknowledgements, mm -hmm. uh, in that it, it often begins with, with a script, um, a, a script of, I'd now like to acknowledge that we're on the lands of, and it's the same thing, and it's very monotone, and then you, you know, pull out your other notes and you move on with everything else that that's that's very important and so I think if we begin with positionality of what does land mean to me what are my responsibilities as a settler person and and sharing this experience this positionality um uh, being vulnerable um and yet I don't think that vulnerability and professionalism in a settler context mm. always necessarily likes to agree with one another right Ooh. and so it's whoa it's pause really there say that again <laughs> We need to hear that again. Just like highlight this, say that again. <laughs> of vulnerability and professionalism is so dichotomous and so contentious in, in settler spaces. And so I think to lean into an Indigenous pedagogy, to lean into an Indigenous ontology where spirit, self, uh, 
certainly a lot of vulnerability bubbling at, at the surface of being one's most authentic self and being able to stand behind, this is who I am, this is where I come from, and these are my responsibilities to my community. Um, it's just so ingrained to, I think, about then applying that to a land acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. So, for example, as to how I approach a land acknowledgement of what this means to me as a Haudenosaunee person, it's going to look very different being in Toronto, being on, you know, ancestral territory and on, on treaty territory of, of my people as compared to when I was in a guest uh, guest in Vancouver and on Musqueam territory and that land acknowledgement and my commitment as a guest looked very different and it needed to. And so I think for settler teacher candidates and likewise for settler educators to even just think about I uh, approaching their Indigenous education from the, the perspective of of, of land acknowledgement and unpacking that over the course of a year of what does this responsibility and these commitments look like to me and by extension having these conversations with our students how does that change your pedagogy how does that help you move beyond bringing in a children's book or one resource around one unit if it becomes a reoccurring thread across science across history and our social studies and, and our language um, to, to come back to this commitment of, of personal responsibility um, around land and around treaty. There's so many things that I want to now ask based on what you just said. Um, with land acknowledgements, I've seen more people now, like I completely agree with you that I think that the when I first started noticing people do land acknowledgements, it was in Vancouver. And then I started seeing things happen in Ontario. I'm like, okay, great. This is really interesting. And then it became very formulaic and scripted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now I'm actually seeing people in response to that pushback about the formula or the scriptedness actually saying, well, personalizing it more, like there's more of a push yeah. to personalize, but I'm also seeing more white settlers talk about commitments and like what they're actually doing. So I went to a theater show the other day and people were doing the land acknowledgement and saying, we're going to be doing this. Like we're donating now to this group of people. If we're yeah. talking about this, yeah. this is what we're going to do. And I think that that's one response to the evolving nature of land yeah. acknowledgements is just yeah. actually taking responsibility within that, you know, script or within yes. that phrase. Yes. Wow. I also wondered about what you were saying with vulnerability. Do you think that that is a hangover of colonialism? Like not being able to not know is a symptom of colonial education. <laughs> A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I would never have um, articulated as, as such, but, uh, but now, I, I mean, absolutely. That, that resonates with me so much. Yeah. Um, because it's about being powerful and it's about being in control. And if you don't know, yes. then do you have power? Like, of course you do. God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> right? But it could be felt as yes. this kind of, you know, if you don't have control over your students, then what are you? Yes. But we actually, yes. If you're know, not the authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about New Zealand because you mentioned that a little bit earlier in our conversation. You went there as part of your master's research. Tell me what you saw in New Zealand. How are folks working through teacher education there incorporating Indigenous knowledges? Like, tell me everything you learned in a nutshell. Like, yeah. <laughs> share with me your master's yeah. dissertation. Go. Oh, man. It, um, it was just the most incredibly rich, beautiful experience, uh, both in part by the 
professional and academic opportunities I was given, uh, but really mostly just uh, Kiwi hospitality and those relationships and, and the incredible people that brought me there. It, it was my one of my committee members, Ruth Kane. She's a Kiwi. And when I had the opportunity through Shirk to be able to go, she's like, don't worry about a thing. I will make the connections and 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 go and learn. And man, what what a, a beautiful experience! And so certainly very different context. Uh, absolutely, I mean that that the lessons in this kind of cross comparative, um, you know, lesson sharing isn't isn't necessarily uh, that the easiest to, to talk across the the world, but ultimately coming down to uh, a very similar history and sentiment of settler colonialism does make it uh, very. It dovetails very interestingly with Canada's experience of, of settler colonialism, um, I think far greater than, than most other uh, settler, settler states. And so the, the conversations were really uh, rich to be able to speak across the, the two, uh, particularly being a Mohawk person um, on, uh, on Maori territory of like, we're both like warrior societies. So there was a lot in common there too. <laughs> the, the biggest things that, that I took away that drives a hundred percent my agenda in a very transparent way of now not only being back in Canada, but having moved back from BC and, you know, being home and being in Ontario, the biggest thing is having uh, the, the language as part of the requirement for every teacher candidate. And so in New Zealand, every teacher candidate that goes through their teacher accreditation program learns the Te Reo Māori language and learns the Indigenous language. Wow. And so the consequence of that, you know, I would fail to articulate in, in all of its complexities, but the, the, some of the consequences of, of that being even just the simple fact to be able to walk into a classroom and you can properly pronounce an Indigenous student's name. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what does that do to be able to properly pronounce their name, um, to be able to understand a ceremony if, if a student mentions something? You don't need to live it in order to be able to um, at least have a rudimentary understanding to be able to engage with a different worldview. The, I think another big thing as well is, I mean, for any second language learner, the ability to, um, you know, code switch and, and kind of translate and navigate between two worlds. What does that do to someone who is who is settler and who is a guest to be able to then be able to see below the surface, even just a little bit to think about, you know, what goes into, so for myself being Mohawk, what goes into the Mohawk language to be able to understand the words for strawberry or for water or for Toronto, you know, what, what an understanding of that language and, and, and that shift in, in mindset and how you then walk on this earth in a different way, particularly where our Indigenous languages are also forefronted by spirituality, which I think really troubles settler colonialism as well, is to walk with and among spirit through your mouth and your voice and what you're hearing and having to acknowledge spirit at the forefront of that really kind of rattles, you know, what it means to be a, a settler guest. And so watching the implication of that and just how normalized it was um, for at least New Zealand, like Kiwi teacher candidates. It was very interesting to watch. Um, New Zealand also had a very big international uh, poll for teacher candidates. And so there were some Canadian teacher candidates that had went over mm -hmm. and were, were doing that, the teacher education program. And man, they struggled with why am I learning this 
language, you know, why am I learning this history? I'm here to learn how to be a teacher. This has nothing to do with me. And so watching that very kind of Canadian sentiment being replicated, but being the minority Mm -hmm. of in New Zealand, it was, you know, how dare you as compared to it being very normalized. And so mind you, this was back in uh, 2016, 2017, um, maybe things are different, maybe not, (laughs) but, um, and so of course, many challenges when, you know, especially coming to, to Toronto to think about, well, what does Indigenous language look like, uh, you know, at York University? If every teacher candidate, uh, you know, graduating teacher candidate had to know an Indigenous language, it's, you know, which Indigenous language, Mm -hmm. you know, which languages are are you prioritizing? So definitely a different context in terms of um, the having a a uniform language as as it was seen in in New Zealand. But mind you, um, there's also very significant uh, regional dialects. And so they were able to, to, to navigate that. Um, but the way in which um, prioritizing beyond tokenistic means of we speak Indigenous languages here, yeah. we know Indigenous history, it's part of uh, the core component beyond a, a sprinkling um, and that anything less than that um, is is you know, quite, quite frivolous. And so conversations definitely have, have changed very quickly, uh, coming back to Canada since, since then, but it, uh, it, it drives me of, you know, I've, I've seen it, I've seen what can happen and, mm. and let's do it here. There's something so important about white people being uncomfortable and being mm. the minority and putting themselves into that position of discomfort around yes. trying to you know, work their mouth around a new set of sounds. And we don't often have to do that in our context. Like, you know, as a white person with Dutch and Scottish heritage, I can traipse around pretty much anywhere and be pretty comfortable. And so to, you know, be asked if you're going to be educating our next generation of people, we would like you to be uncomfortable in this specific way is so important. Like we ask young people to learn French. Why wouldn't we ask people who are going to become teachers to learn indigenous languages? That's so powerful. Tell me about language revitalization, because we were talking a little bit about that before the show. What is going on in Canada with language revitalization? What are you doing? What are you involved with? Like, tell me more about that. Definitely. I mean, I, I feel like at, at best, I'm nothing but uh, a supporter and <laughs> an ally of, of language revitalization. It, it has my heart and I think is at the, the core of uh, my, my position um, at, at York. And it's about uh, bringing our speakers back to our youth and to have future uh, speakers of, of, of our languages. That's, that's what keeps me up at night and that's what Mm. gets me out of bed every morning. That being said, it is our language teachers and those that are making the ultimate sacrifice to walk into the classroom and become uh, students once again of uh, immersion programs. Mm. They are the ones who are putting the language on their back and making that financial and familial sacrifice to have to step away from their jobs and in many cases, families return to school and learn to be fluent speakers. And those uh, are the the ultimate 
heroes of, of language revitalization. Um, and I think that there's a lot of academics, myself included, that have made careers um, talking about language revitalization without actually doing that the hard work. Mm. Um, and so I, truly those, those are the heroes of, of language revitalization. And this is nothing new, however. Uh, language revitalization programs have, have been uh, really going on since uh, since residential schools mm. and recognizing that the very organic intergenerational transmission of our language and of our culture, when that was violently stopped, we then had to prioritize it at many times, in many cases, at behind closed doors. And as I mentioned, my great grandfather was, was a teacher and he was a teacher at QMS on the reserve and when as soon as the Indian agent would leave he'd shut the door and begin to speak the Mohawk language and, and those are the people that that carry and inspire the work that uh, that I do every day and um, now by extension uh, I think of my, my brother he's a Mohawk immersion teacher and every year they create uh, yet another generation of primarily parents they like to prioritize parents knowing that they're going to go mm. back home and, and and raise their kids in, in the language and yet what's so exceptionally important, and I feel like I can have a conversation with anyone, um, regardless of, of biases, and they will say, yes, language revitalization is important. Mm-hmm. I have yet to meet a person that says, no, it's not important, or, you know, no, it shouldn't be a priority. I think uh, everyone everyone agrees with, with language revitalization, and yet it's so sorely, grossly underfunded in Canada. Mm-hmm which at my core, I mean, we can talk about reconciliation and I've sat with really theorizing a praxis of reconciliation, a praxis of reconciliation because I, I believe in it. And um, it, 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 it's what inspires me. And I watch it enacted daily with our educators and with my teacher candidates who are striving for a praxis of reconciliation. But we really can't talk about reconciliation if we're not funding language mm-hmm. revitalization and watching the success and the growth of these programs and have it be proliferated. And I think the last concern that our language speakers should have is where the funding is coming from. And yet we consistently see this time and time again of we have more than enough people who can speak the language and more than enough people that want to learn it and there's not enough funding. And so my own plug and my own uh, (laughs) bias of, you know, thinking about the the holiday season. If we're talking about treaty, if we're talking about uh, land acknowledgements and we want to see language revitalization happen, uh, look into local language revitalization programs. Where are the the local speakers, um, communities, um, educational institutions that are offering Indigenous language classes and Indigenous language revitalization around you and donate. Yeah. Quite simply. That's how you acknowledge. That's actually, you know, I don't know if you've seen this um, Baroness von Sketch where they're in the theater and they're doing the land acknowledgement. And have you seen this sketch before? No. Oh, I'll send it to you. So this, it's actually like so poignant they're doing the land acknowledgement and this white woman is in the audience and she's like as if she's only ever heard a land acknowledgement the first time she's saying well well, what should we do then should we just leave should we should we give the land back like this is this is a big problem like what are we going to do and then like it's funny because you're like well I guess we've all just been listening to these acknowledgements right but we actually have to act like you can't just acknowledge that we're on stolen land you actually have to repair 
something. You have to repair the damage. So language revitalization, that is one really clear pathway to do that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Let's talk about things that you've seen in the classroom because you are connected obviously to many teachers now being in teacher education. What do you see educators doing in their classroom practices to just move beyond performative allyship or checking Mm -hmm. the boxes? Mm -hmm. What are some actual on the ground examples of things that have just blown you away or made you so excited? Oh man. Oh, so, so, so many things. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I'm incredibly biased and uh, because I work with teacher candidates, uh, but it really is uh, my teacher candidates that I've seen some of the most fabulous things uh, come out of their, their work and their, their practicum experience. And whether it's that, that energy and that creativity, um, but it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's there and it's, it's incredible. I'll speak broadly, like in a conceptual way, and then and then I'll provide some specific examples. But broadly and consistently, some of the most reoccurring things I see of what blows me out of the water is when there is a commitment to build relationship with community. Hmm. Uh, because it's so tempting, I think, of when we're talking about Indigenous knowledge in the classroom to, with good intentions, uh, but can be quite um, misguided is, oh, I'll bring in an elder, I'll bring in a knowledge keeper. And and, when we're kind of doing these one-offs, it can become, can become a reappropriation of Indigenous knowledge because it becomes then very Mm one-sided. I will take your knowledge and you will benefit my kids and you will benefit my classroom. And yes, the, the, the kids will, will walk away with, you know, rich, rich knowledge that they wouldn't necessarily get from, from a textbook by listening to an elder or, or a storyteller, but in turn, recognizing that the responsibilities of our elders, of our knowledge keepers, of our language speakers is to be in the community and Mm -hmm. is to share this knowledge with our community. And so when they're coming into our classrooms in one-offs, recognizing what an immense privilege that is, that you have that very sacred, precious time and what are you going to, to, to do with, with that immense privilege that, that you were given to be able to have that sacred time with an elder, a knowledge keeper, um, uh, a cultural advisor? Um, and and I, I am hesitant that, that not enough of, of our educators um, recognize that to have that time with an elder means that that's less time that they have with their community with with Mm -hmm. their families and so uh, this isn't to say I I love that dialogue and when we can have elders knowledge keepers cultural advisors in our classroom so incredibly rich but just kind of sitting with that for I I think a a little while when that's our go-to for Indigenous knowledge that can't become a default because then it's becoming a one-sided relationship so when I'm seeing a reciprocal relationship in that your class um, is benefiting your school community. How, I mean, however big you, you want to take it, how are they benefiting the elder? How are they benefiting the community? Where is that reciprocity for Indigenous peoples to likewise benefit from this relationship, from this dialogue? Um, and so some examples that I've seen of this was one of my teacher candidates out at uh, UBC that I had last year, she, with her grade ones, um, really wanted to work with um, the Songhee First Nation around uh, teachings of medicines and of doing medicine walk. And so she slowly began to build relationship as 
as a student teacher before she even went into her practicum uh, to begin to work with I think she started with the local librarian like it, it's not like you know chief and council like it's it's not kind of political figureheads it's it's people in the community who who have the knowledge and and um, can have that the, the time and the resources to be able to uh, to knowledge share and so I think she began to work with the librarian of what are some resources if I brought my kids here and it really just evolved in a very organic way and, and then the focus of, of how her grade ones, how her grade twos um, were going to be able to, to benefit community uh, through medicine and, and, and knowledge sharing. Um, and so uh, that has stuck with me of um, just that, that level of, of commitment that she was mm -hmm. going to put in the time and recognize um, the sustainability and the reciprocity of, of building relationships slowly and meaningfully. That's so key. That's so important. I would like to keep you forever, but I know that you have other things to do today. So we're going to slowly transition towards a ticket out the door, which is just like a fun series of rapid fire questions. So you don't okay. think too hard about it. <laughs> um, they're lighthearted in nature, but you know, you can approach them from whatever angle you feel you want to. Okay. Something you're grateful for right now. Uh, ginger tea. <laughs> What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? It's terrible. I, I check my phone. I often check my email. <laughs> that is, I think, the most common response. So you're oh. in good company. <laughs> What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Oh, um, I just kind of sit with the, the quietness of uh, I have my husband, I have my uh, little kitty next to me, and it's a lot of love in my home. And I just sit with that. No, oh, that's really nice. What is the most recent TV show that you binged and loved? Oh my gosh, it's such a guilty pleasure at selling selling sunset. Oh yay! <laughs> I'm I'm Team Chriselle for the record. <laughs> Amazing. Put on the record, duly noted. Pie or cake? Both. <laughs> that's the best answer. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Spring or fall? Oh, fall. What would be your last meal on earth? My dad's chicken Parmesan. You are going to start a podcast. Who would be your first three guests? Lin-Manuel Miranda, mm. Bill Pinar, uh, Nicholas Ingefug. Fantastic. I will subscribe to that podcast. <laughs> what, and this is the last question I asked this to everybody. So again, this is one that you can approach from whatever angle you want. What is the future of learning? Wow. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's grounded in, in love. Um, I, I really believe, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, that vulnerability is, I think, so dichotomous with um, settler idea of, of classroom. I think by extension, uh, love has a really bad rap of what does it mean to, to love your students and mm. to bring love back into your practice. And I think it can become such a, a dirty word that seems inappropriate. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't know really any educators that come to mind that wouldn't stop and think, I, I do love my kids. Um, I, I do love the land. Um, I do love my school community or, or how, however that that's conceptualized. Um, but that that is the future. And I think it's, it's bringing that love and that passion back into our work, particularly at times when it's so demanding and so exceptionally challenging to our classroom teachers in particular right now. And I just, I raise my hands to them and 
being the lifeline for our students in these past two years of they have saved lives doing what they do every day. Mm. I raise my hands to you. I just can, you know, I don't know you very well, but just from this conversation, I just feel your hope, your optimism, your sparkle, your your love for this profession. And I'm just so grateful to just get to know you through this conversation. So thank you, Kira. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful way to start my morning, Celeste. It's <laughs> my absolute pleasure. So many of these ideas in this episode have been staying with me long after we hit stop on the recording button. You know, to start with, Teaching Tomorrow is a podcast that's recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Mississauga of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, and the Chippewa. And I've benefited immensely from the many ways that this land has been taken care of by generations before me and the unfair treaties that have been signed that made it easy for my ancestors to purchase land and live in this area. Wherever you are listening today, and we're listening from all over the world, I hope that you too can take a moment and think about the land where you are right now and feel your feet on the earth. Like actually put your feet on the ground if you can and think about where you are and why you are here. Many of us listening today are settler teachers. We have a responsibility to repair past wrongdoings and systemic injustices. After listening to Kira speak, I've made a donation to a local language revitalization program in Toronto, and I encourage you to do the same if you are able. I've included some links in the show notes for how you might do this. A warm thank you to Kira for coming on the show today and sharing her work and her research with us. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep stepping into your vulnerability and remember we are teaching tomorrow.